Well, let's take our Bibles, if you have a copy of your Bible with you. Can you open it up to the book of Genesis, chapter 3? Everybody's always relieved when the preacher says, open to Genesis or Revelation. Those are easier to find than Habakkuk or something like that. Uh, The title of this session is The Impact of the Fall on the Institution of Marriage. And before we get started, I want to also make you aware of uh, Chafer Seminary. You are all aware of it. Um, I'm the president of Chafer Seminary. You say, why do we need another seminary? Don't we already have a bunch of them? And I'll be making some references to answer that in my talk with you this morning. But I wanted to make you aware of our pastor's conference coming up in Houston, March 9th through 11th, uh, featuring uh, Alan Ross and Arnold Fruchtenbaum. So that's going to be a great conference. It's going to be live streamed. And Robbie has some slides he's going to be putting up to kind of reinforce that. Well, uh, here's our order for the seminar. Uh, Last night, Dr. Charlie Clough gave us the standard for marriage as revealed in Genesis 1 and 2. Do we all know that marriage is not uh, man's invention? It's God's invention. And so God had a blueprint for marriage before sin ever entered the picture. And so we got sort of a glimpse of that last night as we took a look at Genesis 1 and 2. And you say, well, then what happened? What went wrong? And that's what this presentation is about. It's about how the fall has damaged many, many things, including the institution of marriage. And Robbie's going to come up here after me, and he's going to play cleanup, and he's going to fix everything for us. Well, I don't know if he's going to do that, but he's going to direct us to the biblical solutions to the problem of marriage, not the problem of marriage, but the problem introduced into the marriage thanks to the fall in Genesis 3. Would you all agree with me that marriage is difficult? Have you read lately what the Apostle Paul said in 1 Corinthians 7 and verse 28? He's talking to people uh, contemplating marriage. And he says, or contemplating getting married, he says, but if you marry, you have not sinned, and if a virgin marries, she has not sinned, yet such will have trouble in this life, and I'm trying to spare you. That's one of the things I like about Paul. He doesn't hide the ball from us. He just comes out and says, well, if you get married, you're in for some, some, some joys, but you're in for some difficulties also. So the question is, why is something that God ordained, why has it become so difficult for people as they enter into that institution? And you really can't understand that until you have a picture of exactly what went wrong, what went awry, if you will, of Genesis in Genesis 3, the fall of man. And you'll notice the quote that I have there from W.H. Griffith Thomas. Uh, We have some kind of connections to him as Chafer Seminary because when Lewisbury Chafer started Dallas Seminary, he hired W.H. Griffith Thomas to be the systematic theologian there. 
And what happened is Thomas died uh, a very short time, I think within weeks of the school opening. And so Chafer himself had to step in as the systematic theologian. So it almost wasn't Chafer Seminary, it was almost Thomas a Theological Seminary. So there's an interesting history there. But W.H. Griffith Thomas says this concerning Genesis 3. This chapter is the pivot on which the whole Bible turns. In other words, if you don't understand Genesis 3, which introduces the crisis, you don't understand the rest of the Bible, which is the resolution of the crisis. Not just in marriage, but many, many things as well. And so what I'd like to do in my short time with you this morning is I want to kind of give you a big picture of Genesis 3, just to kind of cement that in our minds. And then I want to backtrack, circle back, and I want to focus on verse 16, the second half of verse 16 of Genesis 3, which really focuses on the problem introduced into marriage. But I don't think we will appreciate it until we understand the big picture of Genesis 3. The book of Genesis has two basic parts to it. Prologue, chapters 1 through 11. Epilogue, chapters 12 through 50. And each of those major sections contains four things. Genesis 1 through 11 talks about four events. Those are creation, Genesis 1 and 2. The fall, Genesis 3 through 5, Genesis 3 being the key chapter. Chapters 4 and 5 sort of being the lingering consequences of the fall. And then you have the flood, chapters 6 through 9. And then you have national dispersion, chapters 10 and 11. So that's sort of an easy way to think about what Genesis 1 through 11 is communicating Then you move into the epilogue section, uh, the second section of the book of Genesis, and it features four people, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. So two sections, four events in section one, four events in section two. So that's sort of an easy way to sort of compartmentalize what's happening uh, in the book of Genesis. And the reason I'm going into this is because you can't really understand the present until you understand the past. The present will never make any sense to you unless you accept by faith what God has revealed about the past. A lot of people today are saying the the present is the key to the past, and that's incorrect. You don't evaluate what happened in the past by what you can see in the present. It's actually the opposite. To understand the present, you have to understand what God reveals to us concerning the past. And you might be surprised to learn this, but the world that we're living in right now has been changed four times, dramatically. The world as it existed originally is what we call creation, Genesis 1 and 2, no death in that picture at all. And then the world was dramatically changed with the fall, Genesis 3 through 6, and this is where death enters the picture, pregnancy becomes difficult, people have to toil to survive, yet people were living very long into their 900s. Adam lived 930 years, Methuselah lived 969 years, 
Yet there was no human government at that time. That world was changed again through what we call the flood, a global judgment, Genesis 7 through 10. And now in the post-flood world, lifespans become shorter. There's only one language on the earth. No nations exist yet, but you do have functioning human government. And then that world was changed again by what we call the Tower of Babel. And the reason I have it underlined is that's the world we're living in now. We're living in the post-Tower of Babel world. Post-original creation, post-fall, post-flood, post-Tower of Babel. Where global government was disrupted, multiple languages, nations, ethnicities exist. And just to kind of round out our knowledge, what we see is the world that we're living in now is going to be changed three more times. One of these days, the restrainer will be removed and the Antichrist will come to power. And then he will be overthrown by Jesus Christ, who will establish his kingdom on the earth. And that kingdom, one day, which will last a thousand years, will be replaced with the eternal state, which won't be a renovated earth. It'll be a new earth entirely, with no death in it uh, whatsoever. So, how do you make sense of the present world we're living in? You can't unless you understand the three alterations, actually four alterations, the world that we're living in uh, has already gone through. And that includes the institution of marriage. Unless you understand the past alterations of the world, you can't understand why Paul would say marriage is so difficult. And this is one of the distinctives, I believe, of Chafer Seminary, is a lot of schools today are giving up the beginning and they're giving up the end. They're basically saying what is revealed in Genesis 1 through 11 is not literal history. And what is revealed in the book of Revelation is not literal history. And they're moving into more of a allegorical approach to those sections of the Bible. Now, they don't do that with the middle of the Bible but they do it with the front of the Bible and the end of the Bible. And what we're trying to say as a school is let's keep the whole Bible. And the reason we want to keep the whole Bible is if you abandon Genesis 1 through 11, you're left with basically no understanding of what in the world is wrong with our world and why marriage has become uh, so, so difficult. So by the time you move out of creation, uh, everything seems to be humming along just fine, including the institution of marriage. And here's some verses that we read last night, Genesis 1, 26 through 28, the first reference we have to marriage in the whole Bible. It says, then God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness and let them rule over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the sky, over the cattle, over the all, all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. God created man in his own image, in the image of God. He created him male and female. He created them. God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful, fill the earth, and subdue it, and rule over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the sky, over every living thing that moves upon the earth. 
So marriage is brought into existence by God. Everything is humming along just fine. In fact, when you go to Genesis 2, verses 18 through 25, what you'll see is that is a snippet of what was happening on day six. Genesis 2 does not repeat all six creation days. We know that man comes into existence on day six, marriage comes into existence on day six, and if you want the specifics of how God uh, formed uh, Eve from Adam's side, you have to study the details of Genesis 2, verses 18 through 25. And so what does God say about all of this? After every creation day, he says it is what? It is good. And then you get to Genesis 1:31, which is sort of a summation, if you will, of the whole creation week. And God here doesn't just say it's good. He says it's what? It's very good, which would include marriage, right? So what happened? Uh, what went wrong? Why would Paul warn people that if you get married, you're going to find yourself in difficulties? Well, Genesis 3 happened. Genesis 3, the fall of man, is the second event in the first major section of the book of Genesis. Creation has happened, and now the Bible moves us into the fall. Genesis 3 being the pivotal uh, chapter, chapters 4 and 5 being sort of the lingering consequences, if you will, of the fall. Again, I'll remind you of W.H. Griffith Thomas's quote. This chapter, Genesis 3, is the pivot on which the whole Bible turns. And you see, this is sort of what bothers me about modern-day evangelical counseling. When you have marriage problems and you go into a pastor or a counselor for advice, they're not directing people back to Genesis 3. They're sending them to all these other sources. But what you're going to discover is your best marital advice you're going to find directly in the pages of God's Word, and you cannot neglect or overlook Genesis Three. So what I want to do is I want to give you the big picture of Genesis 3. And then I'm going to cycle back and we're going to spend a little additional time on the second part of verse 16. Uh, which is really the key verse concerning the institution of marriage. So what I do with Genesis 3 is I take it and I divide it into five parts. So let's just sort of walk through these parts very fast. I wish we had time to read every verse. We don't but I'll just sort of summarize these verses and let you know the big idea that's happening in each of these sections. Genesis 3, verses 1 through 5, is the temptation of Adam and Eve by the serpent. You say, well, who's the serpent? Well, the Bible is self-interpreting. The book of Revelation tells you exactly who the serpent is. If you just jot down Revelation 12, verse 9... And Revelation 20, verse 2, you'll see that the serpent is none other than Satan or the devil himself. And Genesis 3.1 talks about the craftiness of the serpent. Why is he crafty? Well, who exactly was Satan before he fell? He was not just an angel. He was, according to Ezekiel 28 and verse 14, an anointed covering cherub. 
uh, my reading of that is he seemed to be the, the, the high-ranking angel, perhaps the highest. And Jude verse 9 tells us that Michael won't even take on Satan, but simply says, the Lord rebuke you. So Satan is very crafty. He is a very uh, powerful entity. And why would Satan take the form of a serpent in Genesis 3? I mean, did he possess the serpent's body? Did he take the form of a serpent? I don't know, but he slithers into Eden, assuming he even slithered. I'll make a reference to that in just a second. But he comes in as a serpent. And there's a reason he's doing that. He's trying to pervert a structure that God set up. God's original structure was to govern our forebears, Adam and Eve, and their job was to govern creation on God's behalf. And that's where you see this dominion language when God speaks to Adam and Eve. He says, let them rule over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air. And he actually gives them a command to subdue the earth and rule over it. And it's, uh, if you want a fancy name for that, it's an office that God set up called the Office of Theocratic Administrator. And basically what that means is God is governing Adam and Eve, and Adam and Eve are governing creation for God. So why would Satan take the form of a serpent? It's very simple. He's trying to reverse this order. He's trying to get Adam and Eve to no longer govern creation for God, but he's trying to get Adam and Eve to listen to the voice of creation and in the process rebel against God. And this is how Satan brought his own kingdom to the earth. See that? He perverted God's kingdom. And that's why the rest of the scripture tells us that he very much is ruling the world system. He's the prince of this world, the god of this age, the prince and power of the air. He's the reason we have to put on the full armor of God. He's the one that roams about like a roaring lion seeking someone to uh, devour. And so the goal of history is how God brings his kingdom that he originally established in Eden that was subverted, how he brings that kingdom to the earth. Charles Ryrie says, why is an earthly kingdom necessary? Is not his present rule his inheritance? Why does there need to be an earthly kingdom? Because he, that's God, must be triumphant in the same arena where he was seemingly defeated. His rejection was by the rulers of this world, was on this earth, and therefore his exaltation also must be on this earth. And you see what's happening in the Bible? God is bringing back, through the progress of time, the kingdom that was lost in Eden. And in the thousand-year kingdom, God the Father is going to reign over God the Son. Not the first Adam, but the who? Last Adam. And that last Adam, Jesus Christ, is going to govern creation for God. And so what Satan did right at the beginning of human history is he attacked the kingdom concept and he subverted the authority that God had over the earth. And how he did it is very interesting. Uh, I wish we had time to study these verses in detail. 
as Solomon said, there's nothing new under the sun, amen? And so the same tactics he used in Eden are the same tactics he uses today. When you compare what he said to Eve to the original command concerning the tree of knowledge, you'll see Satan adding to God's word, challenging God's goodness, subtracting from God's word, and also offering them the ability to gain wisdom without God. The Bible says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of what? Wisdom, and actually Proverbs 1 verse 7 says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. You, you gain knowledge through submission to God. And Satan comes along in Genesis 3 verse 5 and basically says, if you listen to me, ye shall be like gods as well. And so the same sort of strategies that he used here in Genesis 3 are the same strategies he's using today. Would you all agree with me on that? And in this section, we notice how Adam and Eve really didn't do very well under pressure. Uh, what were the mistakes that they made? Well, Eve, you'll notice, subtracts from God's word when you compare what she says to the original command. She adds to God's word. She begins to doubt the goodness of God. And I believe that what's happening here is an initial breakdown in male headship. I want to talk for a little bit in this presentation about male headship and the significance of that. But uh, one of the things that you discover is that God created Adam first. Genesis 2, verses 4 through 7. Then, in Genesis 2, verses 16 and 17, you have the instructions concerning the tree of knowledge. Then, in verses 18 through 25, God creates Eve from Adam's side. So I want you to notice that Eve wasn't present when God gave the original instructions concerning the tree of knowledge. Now, presumably, how was she supposed to learn about those instructions? What do you all think from her husband? And the fact that she really doesn't understand the command and she's sort of ambiguous about it, to me, communicates that the man is not really discipling his wife the way God intended. And so what you start to see is an initial breakdown, if you will, in male headship. And then we go from Genesis 3, verses 1 through 5 to Genesis 3 and verse 6, and take a look at verse 6. It says, when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took from its fruit and ate it. She gave to her husband with her and he ate. So the woman saw that the tree was good for food, desirable to the eyes, desirable to make one wise. What, is, what are those? Those are the three avenues in which all temptation comes. John calls them in 1 John 2, verse 16, lust of the flesh, lust of the eye, and the what? Pride of life. Lust of the flesh is the body. Use your body to rebel against God. Lust of the eye is covetousness, desiring what God has forbidden. And pride of life is living your life on your own terms without God. 
And so you'll see in Genesis 3, verse 6, all three of those present. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that's an appeal to the lust of the flesh. When it was desirable to the eyes, that's an appeal to lust of the eye. She saw that it was desirable to make one wise without submission to God. That's the appeal to the pride of life. Every temptation you ever face is going to come to you in one of those three avenues. And of course, Jesus Christ, Luke 4, verses 1 through 13, unlike Eve, stood up under those three temptations in the wilderness. When you study the temptations of Christ, you'll find them all fitting into the exact same category. Lust of the flesh, lust of the eye, and the pride of life. And you'll notice what the second part of verse 6 says. She gave to her husband and he ate. So no longer are our forebears governing creation for God but now they're listening to creation and rebelling against God. Adam is not discipling his wife. He's following his wife into sin, and this is a breakdown of what we would call male headship that God established in Genesis 1 uh, and 2. And um, this slide was supposed to be up there as I was talking, but you'll see verse 6 is the three temptations. Second part of verse 6 is the breakdown of male headship. The reason male headship is an issue today is because there is a movement within the evangelical church called evangelical feminism, which argues this. It's a theological movement within the evangelical church that seeks to abolish all gender role distinctions within marriage in the church. And what they'll say is any verse of the Bible that communicates male headship is not God's original plan. That was actually part of the fall. And what we're trying to argue is male headship is actually something that existed prior to the fall. It's something that God established. How do I know that? Three things. Number one, Adam was created first. Eve was created second. That's a big deal to Paul. In 1 Timothy 2, verse 13, when he's talking about gender limitations on certain roles in ministry. Also, Adam named Eve. It's not the other way around. Eve didn't name Adam. Adam named Eve. And when God names things, it's a sign of his authority over what he's named. And by God giving Adam that right to name his wife, it was showing his headship within marriage. And Eve sinned first, and Adam sinned second, but who does God call to account? He calls out to the man, Genesis 3, verse 9. Why is that? Because he's the leader. When Enron goes belly up, you don't go after the janitor. You go after the Ken Lay, you know, the CEO. And that's, in, in essence, what God is doing here. And male headship is something that existed prior to the fall. It's something that God designed in the first marriage. And that's one of the reasons that we're, we are what we are here at Chafer Seminary, because that doctrine is, is almost looked at as an anathema in many places. Many, many schools are moving aggressively away from male headship as part of the design of God, and we're trying to, to hold the line on that. 
Now, if you're female and you're listening to me, you might be a little bit nervous. Who is this guy and where is he coming from? So let me give you some balance, balancing statements on this. Male headship does not mean that the woman is the slave of the man. You'll notice that the woman was created from man's side, not his foot to trample on or from his head to rule over. She is a helper and not a slave, Genesis 2, verse 18. She is created to complete what is lacking in the man. My wife says this to me all the time. She goes, do you know why the woman is called the helpmate in the marriage? And I said, why is that? And she said, well, because men need a lot of help. And I agree with that. And she is called the helper or the easer. Charlie made a reference to that in his presentation uh, last night. And what you'll discover is that's a, that's a word used for God over and over again. I have the scriptures there on point three. And by the way, did you know that the Holy Spirit is called the helper? He is called in the New Testament the paraclete or the one who comes alongside to help or the one who comes alongside to assist. So calling someone a helper is, is not uh, a derogatory thing at all. And so we want to offer these balancing comments when we talk about male headship, because in this culture it's very easy to have people misunderstand exactly what you're, you're talking about. And the woman is created from the same essence as the man. Genesis 2, 24 and 25, bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. She was taken out of man. And beyond that, you'll notice that in early Genesis, both Adam and Eve bear who, whose image? God's. Genesis 1.27, in the image of God, God has created him, male and female. So my wife is just as much an image bearer of God as I am. And uh, beyond that, did you notice that both Adam and Eve are vested with authority in Genesis 1? God said to them, now who would the them be? Adam and Eve. Rule over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the sky. Uh, so the authority is given to both Adam and Eve uh, in the uh, original marriage. So when we talk about male headship, you know, we're not talking about men dominating women. We're not talking about chauvinism. What we're talking about is the same kind of relationship exists between man and woman that exists within the Trinity. The son submits to the father, doesn't he? But when the son submits to the father, does he relinquish one iota of his essence? No, he doesn't. He's still fully God. So we're talking about a distinction not in value, but a distinction in what? In function or role. And that's what we mean by male headship. And you see, this is what was fractured in Genesis 3. It's, it's fractured right there in verse 6 when the woman is leading her husband into sin. Not only are they no longer ruling creation on God's behalf, which is how the office of theocratic administrator was lost, but the uh, headship role is lost here as well. So we have the temptation, we have the sin, and then you go down to verses 7 through 13 of Genesis 3, and you have the results of the sin. 
consequences follow sin like night follows the day. Amen? And so what happens there in verses 7 through 13 is the consequences of what just happened are articulated. Number one, humanity got very religious very fast because they tried to make clothes for themselves. That's the first act of religion in the Bible. Religion is man's attempt to pull himself up to God and accommodate for his sins by his own human works. And we're going to see in verse 21 that that is not how God is going to restore fallen man. But this is man's attempt to do it. Number two, fellowship is broken. Because they used to stroll with God in the cool of the garden, and now they're doing what? They're hiding from God. Verses 8 through 10. Why are they hiding from God? Because the relationship has changed. No longer are they perfect people living in the presence of a holy God, but now they are sinful people in the presence of a holy God. And sinful people don't want anything to do with a holy God. If a police officer walks in this room right now, and I look at that police officer in his or her uniform, I'm very comforted by their presence, generally. Unless I drove in here today at 85 miles an hour, then that police officer makes me very nervous, see? Because I'm standing in the presence of someone who exists to enforce the law, and I'm a lawbreaker. And this is why Adam and Eve are now hiding from God verses 8 through 10, and then you have good old-fashioned buck passing, right? God calls Adam to account what went wrong. Adam says, it's the woman that you gave me. It's not my fault, it's her fault, and by the way, God, it's your fault too, because you gave me her in the first place. No one wants to take responsibility for their action, and who does Eve blame? It's the serpent. So as the saying goes, Adam blamed Eve, Eve blamed the serpent, and the serpent didn't have a leg to stand on. And then you'll notice also the reversal of the creation hierarchy. Uh, what's happening is they're not governing creation for God. They're, it's supposed to be man having authority over his wife, the two of them governing creation for God, and now Adam is listening to the voice of his wife, following her into sin. And the two of them are certainly not governing creation. They're listening to the voice of creation in rebellion against God. So what happens after that is God moves in and he begins to impose judgments, verses 14 through 19. And he speaks first to the serpent because the serpent sinned first. He speaks second to the woman because the woman sinned for second, and he speaks to the man third because the man sinned third. And to each of the three, he says two things. Two things to the serpent, two things to the woman, two things to the man. So what does he say to the serpent? Well, one of the things that's interesting here is the serpent's body is changed. Verse 14. Now, please don't, in the Q&A session, ask me what that's about, because I don't know if I really understand it. Um, I, I do know that serpents crawling in the dust seem to be different than what was experienced in Eden. 
It may have something to do with humiliation, humiliating the serpent. You might want to cross-reference Micah 7 and verse 17, where crawling in the dust is sort of analogized to humiliation. But I do know this much, that sin brought a physical change to this world, including the animal kingdom. And that's very important to understand because we look at sin just as a spiritual issue. It damaged their relationship to God, which it did. But there was an obvious physical consequence to what took place. And we need to see sin as affecting everything, including marriage, which I'll be talking about in just a minute. Then in verse 15, the second thing God says to the serpent is what's called the proto-evangelium. It's your first formal presentation of the gospel in the whole Bible where God says to the serpent, there's coming one from the seed of the woman who's going to crush your head. Oh, and you're going to be able to bruise his heel, but ultimately he's going to crush your head. And that verse is a microcosm of the whole Bible. Because the rest of the Bible is an explanation of that verse. Uh, Many, many examples, starting in Genesis 4, the very next chapter, where the lineage leading to Christ was threatened by many, many people in the Old Testament. That's the bruising of the heel. Satan trying to stop the birth of the Messiah. But as the scripture unfolds, what you begin to see is that Satan is progressively defeated. He's not defeated at once. He's defeated in basically seven phases. And that's the outworking of Genesis 3, verse 15, where God predicts that the serpent's head will be crushed. So he says two things to the serpent, and then he says two things to the woman. The first thing he says to the woman is childbirth is going to become difficult. Verse 16. Now, I want you to understand something. This is very important to understand. Childbirth is not the curse. Procreation is not the curse. Because what did God say to our forebears? Be fruitful and multiply. The curse is the process has now become difficult. You see that? And then the second thing he says to the woman, second part of verse 16, is what just got introduced into your marriage is relational conflict. And that's the verse I'm going to circle back to and go into a little bit more detail uh, after we finish sort of this overview. And then God says, by imposing judgments, he says two things to the man. Those are in verses 17 through 19. The first thing he says to the man is labor is going to become painful. Now, labor and industry and work, that's not the curse. I know that because of Genesis 2, verse 15, where God put our forebears, Adam, specifically in the garden, and he said, cultivate it and keep it. God always intended man to be productive and to work. The curse is that the process of, now you have to do it to forge out a living. Your survival is dependent on it. You can no longer work for enjoyment, and satisfaction, now you have to work to survive. So pregnancy and procreation is not the curse, the process becomes the curse, the difficulty of it. 
industry and labor is not the curse, but now you have to do it to survive. That's the curse. And then he says the second thing to the man, he predicts death from dust you are to what? Dust you shall return. And it doesn't take long to get into the Bible and see that happening, right? If you go over to Genesis 5 and verse 5, it says, All the days of Adam were 930 years, and he died. And it says of Seth, All the days of Seth were 912 years, and he died. Verse 11, All the days of Enosh were 905 years, and he died. Uh, Kenan. All the days of Kenan, verse 14, Genesis 5, were 910 years, and he died. Uh, Verse 17, all the days of Mahalalel were 895 years, and he died. And going down to verse 20, uh, uh, so all the days of Jared were 962 years, and he died. And then you have the oldest living man, Methuselah, Genesis 5, 27. All his days were 900, and uh, what is that? uh, 69 years, and he died. What do all these people have in common? They're all dead. Because that's what God said would happen. So Genesis 3 verse 19 is sort of the judgment that came into the human race as a consequence. So you see how physical all of this is? So the world that we're living in now because of these judgments is in bondage. In fact, Romans 8 verses 23 19 through 23 talks about it and says the whole creation groans. And then Paul says, we groan. Anybody groaning today? Why are we groaning? Because our bodies are deteriorating. And you say, well, Andy, I just don't believe you. Well, let me prove it to you. When you go home today, break out your high school yearbook and take your modern day driver's license picture and put it next to your high school picture, what you used to look like, and you'll see exactly what I'm talking about. From dust you are, to dust you shall return. These are physical consequences that were introduced into the human race. And then the chapter ends with God's provision. God, in grace, gives three things, verses 20 through 24. Number one, the human race is going to continue in spite of death, because Eve is the mother of the living. And then how does God forgive their sin? He clothes them with animal skins. Where did those animal skins come from? Obviously, God killed an animal there on the spot and used the skins to clothe Adam and Eve. And you say, well, what did the animal do wrong? Nothing. The animal is the innocent substitute. And right there in verse 21 is the first glimpses of how God is going to forgive sin. It's called the vicarious atonement. It's completely different than what they were doing in verse 7 where they, out of religiosity, were trying to clothe themselves. So people are either in verse 7, in religion, trying to work their way into God's presence, or they're resting in the sacrifice that God provides, verse 21. I I spent 16 years of my life in verse 7. And then I got saved, and by God's grace, I've been living in verse 21 ever since. And then they're kicked out of Eden, so they can't eat from the tree of life and live forever in their fallen condition. And this is where God says, the man has become like one of what? us, knowing both good and evil. And there's your beginning of the doctrine of the Trinity. 
the us passages. Let us make man in our image, Genesis 1:26. Let us go down and confuse their language, Genesis 11, verse 7. Who will go for us, Isaiah 6, verse 8. Now, we've got to get to the New Testament to get the full orb doctrine of the Trinity. But you start to see it there in infant form. So what I've hopefully done for you there is given you the big, big picture on what in the world is wrong with our world and all of its various parts. And unless you understand that, then the solutions that God offers as the scripture starts to develop, including the gospel itself, will be a mystery to you. You can't reach out for a solution until you understand the problem. And half the battle is getting folks to understand what the problem is. If you understand the problem, the solution is very easy to accept. But we're living in a generation today that doesn't even see the problem. Because we don't give attention to Genesis 3, which is an explanation of the problem. So there's a quick walk through Genesis 3. Now, one of the things I want to communicate is Genesis 3 affected marriage. The original blueprint for marriage is the man shall leave his mother and father and be joined to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. God's original plan for marriage is one man for one woman for one life. And there are many people that have fallen short of that standard because of circumstances in their own life and I'm not here to heap guilt on anybody. I'm just here to communicate what the standard is. This is the standard. Then Genesis 3 happens. And what do you have going on in Genesis 4? Lamech said to his what? Wives. I thought it was one man for one woman for one life. Where did these wives come from? We even get their names. Ada and Zillah, you wives of Lamech. So obviously what happened in between Genesis 2 and Genesis 4 is the blueprint got lost as man starts to sort of invent his own ideas of how things ought to work in terms of uh, a relationship. Here, you, you have a quick movement into polygamy, or bigamy, polygamy, etc. So let me now, I've got about 15 minutes left, and let me go back, and let's, with that background in mind, let's go right back to verse 16, because that is the problem in marriage, introduced by what is happening in Genesis 3. Remember God imposed the judgments? Remember God said two things to the woman? Remember what he said in the second thing to the woman, verse 16? He talked about relational conflict. Watch this. He said, your desire, there's the Hebrew word in brackets, will be for your husband and he will rule over you. I'm going to be so bold as to say this. Most of the interpretations you've received through sermons and books and preaching have been completely incorrect on this. And the reason they've been incorrect is because people don't follow basic Bible study methodology. Back to Chafer Seminary. One of the things we're real big on is hermeneutics or method of interpretation. And we believe that if people had a little bit more understanding of proper biblical interpretation, they would not veer off into a lot of the strange doctrines that you hear today in modern-day evangelicalism. These are reasons why we exist as a school. Uh, you know, we're not 
starting a school just to start a school. We're starting a school or we're involved in a school because we see a need. And the need is my people perish for a lack of what? Knowledge. And so what people typically do with this is they leapfrog from the Mosaic era when this was written and they run off to the Solomonic era, the Song of Solomon. Solomonic era is about four centuries or so after the time of Moses, a different writer entirely. And they find this verse, Song of Solomon 7, verse 10, which says, I am my beloved's and his desire, same Hebrew word, is for me. So they take that and they read it back into Genesis 3, verse 16. And they come up with the following interpretations of Genesis 3, verse 16. Number one, a wife's sexual desire for her husband will be so strong that she will be willing to face the pain of childbirth to satisfy it. Explanation number two, the desire makes a woman be willing uh, to be a slave to a man and is an expression of her psychological dependence upon him. Explanation number three, the wife will only desire what her husband desires and she will have no command of herself. And these are all typical interpretations you get out of Genesis 3 verse 16, building it from the same word used by Solomon, a different writer, four centuries later. And the, the reality of the situation is it's not hard to interpret this verse if you pay attention to basic Bible interpretive methodology. When you interpret a word, you always study how the same author in the same book, preferably in the same context, uses that word. That's what you do first. Now, if you want to consult Solomonic literature, you can do that after the fact. In fact, uh, Ray Mondragon, who's sitting right here, teaches our hermeneutics class, and he has a, a kind of a chart of concentric circles. You know what chart I'm talking about, Ray? Working their way out, and he's teaching people how to do a word study. So how would I interpret Genesis 3, verse 16? I wouldn't run off to Solomon. I would just turn the chapter to the right. Because when you turn the chapter to the right you run into Genesis 4, verse 7, where Cain is contemplating murdering his brother. And in the midst of it, God says to Cain, it, that sin, its desire, same Hebrew word, its desire is for you, but you must master it. Now, when you study those two verses in Hebrew, and I, I want to give credit to where credit is due. I mean, I didn't necessarily see this on my own. The first source I know of that talks about this is an article by Susan Foe, F-O-H. It's called, What is the Woman's Desire? It's in the Westminster Theological Journal. And you see, when you enroll in our school, we teach Logos, we teach how to access journal articles, which sort of puts your Bible interpretation more on the cutting edge of things, you see. These are just tools in your toolbox to allow you to be a more effective missionary, a more effective Sunday school teacher, a more effective pastor, uh, a more effective person as an elder or behind the pulpit, wherever God has you. That's what you need. You need these basic tools or else you're just gonna run amok 
with all kinds of strange ideas. And that's basically where the evangelical world is at today. It's strange things are being taught because you have a lot of untaught people in the pulpits that haven't learned the basic rules of Bible study. And what is being said in Genesis 4, verse 7, is God says to Cain, you know, Cain, you're thinking about killing your brother, and that temptation is trying to control you, desire. It's not romantic. It's not sexual. It's power. It's trying to control you, and you had better control it before it, what, controls you. So when you follow basic Bible study methodology, what you learn is Genesis 3, verse 16 is understood by how it's used in Genesis 4, verse 7. And Susan Foe points out how the two sentences in Hebrew are a spitting image of each other in terms of their grammatical layout. There's uh, a little bit of adjustment here in terms of person, I think it is, in gender. But other than that, you'll see the two sentences in parallel. And so if Moses used the exact same sentence structure with the same Hebrew words in Genesis 4, verse 7, then maybe we should use that to interpret Genesis 3, verse 16. Maybe Genesis 3, verse 16 doesn't have anything to do with sexual attraction, romantic attraction, a woman submitting to the role of the man. Maybe it's the woman trying to control the man and the man not liking it. And he fights back at the woman simultaneously. The same power structure uh, struggle, I should say, that's happening with Cain is now introduced into marriage, Genesis 3, verse 16. That wasn't the design of God. That was a repercussion of the fall. So the fall did not just damage our vertical relationship to God. It damaged our horizontal relationships to each other including the most fundamental and foundational uh, institution that God ever created, the institution of marriage. And what God is saying is this, Cain, you better control sin, the temptation before it controls you, power struggle. So what is the natural proclivity of the woman within marriage? She is going to try to grab the reins of power. She is going to naturally try to grab the steering wheel and assert her authority as a leader, that's the beginning of feminism right there. The man, by contrast, will resent it. He will not like it. And his tendency is to rule over her with brutality. That's the beginning of chauvinism. Chauvinism and feminism both have their roots in what's gone awry, awry here in Genesis 3. And if you understand Genesis 3, verse 16, in light of Genesis 4, verse 17, through basic Bible study methodology and a little bit of awareness of Greek and Hebrew, which we believe at Chafer Seminary we can give people, then these meanings will become clear. See, So what is being revealed here is a basic power structure within marriage. Every marriage has built within it, as a consequence of the fall, a tension. So as a pastor, people come to me and they say, we're having marital problems. And my answer is, well, of course you're having marital problems. The Bible says you would have marital problems. I mean, is that front page news you're having marital problems? What would be front page news if you weren't having marital problems? 
because God said marital problems are going to exist. Because there was a problem that got introduced into the human race at the relational level in Genesis 3. Suddenly, you start to understand that. The rest of the Bible starts making sense. I mean, why would Solomon, the wisest man that ever lived other than Christ, say things like this in the Proverbs? Proverbs 21.9, It's better to live in the corner of a roof than in a house shared with a contentious woman. Verse 19, same chapter. Why would he say it's better to live in the desert land than with a contentious and vexing woman? Uh, over in chapter 25, verse 24, why would, he, why would he say it's better to live in the corner of the roof than in a house shared with a contentious woman? Why does he keep bringing that up? It's an outworking of Genesis 3, verse 16. It's the natural posture of the female within the marriage to try to control the marriage and to try to control the man. A woman doesn't have to work to do this. It's something that comes to her naturally. It's not God's design. It's a ramification of the fall. Now, why would you say, well, you sure are letting the men off the hook here? No, I'm not. Why would 1 Peter 3 and verse 7 says, you husbands in the same way live with your wives in an understanding way? Why would Peter say, as with someone weaker, since she is a woman, and show honor as a fellow heir of the grace of life so that your prayers will not be hindered? Why would the Bible, why would the New Testament have to tell me as a man to live with my wife, to dwell with my wife, as, as an understanding person? Why would it have to tell me to not treat her with brutality, to rule over her with brutality? Why would it have to tell me you don't treat a woman like you treat one of the guys in the locker room because she is more fragile? More fragile doesn't mean she's less valuable to God because the rest of the verse says she's a fellow heir with you. The fact of the matter is a woman, I know everybody can come up with exceptions, but a woman is reduced to tears faster than a man because that's how God designed her. She's more fragile. If I took a, one football team and they were all males and I took another football team and made them all females, who do you think is gonna win the game? I think most of the time the men are gonna win because men are naturally stronger. They're not smarter but they have something within them that's of a stronger uh, caliber. Now, everybody comes up with exceptions. You know, oh, I saw World Wrestling Federation, and I saw this Amazon woman put this guy in a headlock and all this stuff, and I'm not talking about the exceptions. I'm just talking about the general rule here. So the New Testament has to come along to me and educate me that I need to dwell with the woman out of respect treating her as more fragile. Why would it have to tell me that? Because my basic tendency as a man is to run right over her. Her basic tendency as a woman is try to control the marriage. My basic tendency as a man is to dislike it and to run right over her roughshod. That's my basic impulse. So therefore, the New Testament is giving me exhortations which go against my natural tendency. You see that? Why do I have this natural tendency? Because of Genesis chapter 3 and verse 16. 
So what I've tried to do in the sessions is sort of paint the picture as to what the problem is within marriage. And the problem is a built-in power structure struggle. Because as we have studied, the fall didn't just affect our relationship to God, it affected our relationship to each other. Including the most significant relationships God has given us, the husband-wife um, relationship. And there's only one escape from this. The only escape you're going to find is living out Ephesians 5. Robbie Dean is going to be talking about this as part of the solution. I can't appreciate the solution until I appreciate the problem. I've got to love my wife as Christ loves the church. That counters my tendency towards chauvinism, which is built inside of me. She, by contrast, needs to submit and respect her husband, Ephesians 5. That is going to counter the natural impulse within her to control the man. You see that? So there is a perpetual struggle within every marriage. You can't understand it unless you study Genesis 3. And unless you're committed to walking out the principles of Ephesians 5, there's no hope at all. It's just going to be one ongoing battle after another. The only escape is the exhortations that Paul gives us uh, in uh, uh, Ephesians 5. So Robbie's going to uh, deal uh, a little bit more with that um, in the session that follows. So Genesis 3 is the problem. There's a reason Genesis 3 is given first. Describes the problem, and the rest of the Bible becomes the um, the solution. So let me let me pray for us, Father. We're grateful for this conference, grateful for this group that wants to go deeper into Your Word, and yet You uh, have exhorted us to do that because we can't make sense of this world, we can't make sense of struggles within marriage unless we understand what You've revealed, and uh, help us to uh, grasp these truths. We ask these things in Jesus' name. One quick thing before I relinquish the floor is you, I notice that this crowd is a little older, which is okay. Because one of the things you're gonna have an opportunity to do is you're gonna have an opportunity to counsel people that are children or grandchildren that are contemplating marriage. And you're gonna have the opportunity to tell them what kind of spouse to pick. And usually our counseling is, well, just marry a Christian. I would say that's not very good counseling at all. That's a first step. But you need to be telling these young people, you need to think about a spouse that's committed to walking out the principles of Ephesians 5. You don't marry someone that's perfect. But if the two of you, as a couple, are not committed to together walking out the principles of Ephesians 5, I'll tell you something, it's just going to be one perpetual battle until your dying day. And I know for a fact in my marriage when these tensions start to arise, instead of getting mad and upset, I usually get alone with the Lord, say, what's going on? It's, it's always an Ephesians 5 problem. It comes in different forms with different names and categories, 
but it's an Ephesians 5 problem because of the problem, I need Ephesians 5 because of the problem of Genesis 3. So who do you marry? You need to exhort people to marrying someone that's committed to walking out Ephesians 5 with you. Um, as my wife and I have conflicts, we always go back to Ephesians 5, and we're not perfect in our marriage, but we've made it for 20 years, so praise God. I'm finished talking.